Hello, everybody. Welcome to the Riff Hard Podcast. I'm A.L. Levy, and I will be hosting this one alone today. Brown is out, but don't worry. I've got a great episode for you. One of my favorite guitar players is on. It's Mr. Stefan Kummerer from Obscura. He's also the main songwriter, leader, vocalist, and one of the guitar players for Obscura, who happen to be, in my opinion, one of the best technical death metal bands of all time. Enjoy this episode. I sure as hell did. Stefan Kummer, welcome to the Riff Hard Podcast. Hi there. Pleasure to be here. Thank you for the invitation. And well, let's nerd out about everything about guitars and production. Yeah, let's do it. I'm excited to have you here because I've been a, been a fan of your work since I first heard about it 15 years ago or something. So I'm excited to do this. And one of the reasons that I wanted to talk to you besides production and guitar playing was one of the things that I've always found interesting about your style is the melodic sense. I feel like uh, in a lot of metal and extreme metal, when people say the word melodic, they don't really mean melodic. They just mean it doesn't sound like total brutal chugging, you know, madness. Like people will just say that if something has a harmony on it, it sounds melodic, which is not, in my opinion, that doesn't mean melodic. A melody is something that sticks in your head that you can almost sing back and that goes somewhere, in my opinion. So I'm just wondering, what are your thoughts on what melodic actually means in the context of what you do? And where do you think that even comes from for you? Well, for Obscura and also for Kandra, it's properly the big blend of different styles. So me, my friends and everybody around here in the local scene, we did not only listen to a certain musical style. So the influences are definitely coming from, I would say, two big scenes. First of all, the predecessors of uh, technical death metal or proc death metal, so death, atheist, pestilence, most of those Morris sound recording bands. And on the other side, we also have been listening to a lot of those mid-90s, late-90s uh, Scandinavian bands, Emperor, Dissection, At The Gates. All of those bands had a big, big, big influence. And I think what we do with Obscura is more or less a mix of all those everything we, we listened to back in the days when we started our journey in the extreme metal scene that became more or less part of our DNA when we started to write our own music. And I think this blend is also something that differs us from many, many different bands uh, playing in the same genre. The melodic approach is definitely part of this uh, black and death metal scene of the European metal scene overall, maybe even the power metal scene, depending. I, I actually think European music in general, because if you look at orchestral music, for instance, if you look at the difference between American orchestral music and European orchestral music, the uh, just traditionally, whatever came out of Europe had much stronger melodic sense to it much stronger melodies and uh i think that part of it also has to do with the fact that european folk music isn't based on blues not that blues existed in the 1800s but european folk music did and the european folk music is much more melodic than american folk music in my opinion so i actually think it's just in the in the european sensibility almost that's absolutely possible. The focus always splits somewhere in between. You mentioned um, 
the American scene might be rooted somewhere rather into into blues. And what I always found quite interesting is the fact that most US bands or Canadian bands are pretty much on top when it comes to polyrhythms, when it comes to really interesting rhythm parts or the entire rhythm section. That was always uh, one of the biggest strengths and something that differed them from most of the bands that came out over here in uh, Germany or uh, Scandinavia, France and so on. That was always a big big difference and minus my sugar <laughs> that's 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 just four four <laughs> <laughs> i mean yeah you, you could think of it like four four it's the craziest four four i've ever heard uh you know a band called panzerballet no should i yeah that's quite interesting after this tell me how to write it how to spell it and i'll check it out but uh, sorry i cut you off what were you saying the entire environment you're growing up definitely has some kind of influence at least that's what happened back in the days if you think about the 80s 90s early 2000s when uh, internet was not that present you have been mostly influenced by bands you saw live underground shows, maybe concerts uh, that have been uh, promoted or uh, CDs you could buy in local stores. And uh, I think that all those all those countries or let's uh, call it continents, they, they differed extremely. And this en entire thing broke up when um, basically the world got connected a lot. And nowadays it's really hard to say that a band uh, sounds like, oh, well, uh, this band sounds like Raiders, so they have to be from Poland. Or this band is so technical, advanced, they definitely have to be from Montreal or something. All those cliches are gone. Because nowadays, as a fan, you have the option to listen to music from around the globe and also uh, deliver your own demos to everybody around the globe who's interested in them. All those borders are basically begun and done. And I'm just uh, thinking about how music would sound in probably 20 years from now if uh, there's still the term European metal or American metal a thing or if it's completely gone or how, how you would describe it by then. So let, let's see how that turn out. It's quite interesting. I think that it'll still exist. There'll still be trends, but it's not going to be geographically based. And I think that the, the geography of a sound has a lot to do with the fact that once upon a time, uh, there was very little way to, you know, to influence people outside of that geographical area. So if you take Seattle, right, the Seattle sound where you have like Alice in Chains, Nirvana, Pearl Jam, Soundgarden, whoever else I'm forgetting that was part of that scene. Well, they were all local bands pretty much at the same time who were competing with each other. And there was no internet for them to really hear other bands. So they're, I mean, sure, they're influenced by, you know, bigger bands that came before them, but their direct influences right then and there are the bands that they were around in person playing with, competing against. I think the same with like, you know, any scene uh, from the past. But I think that now the scenes still exist. There's still scenes. I just think that the geography is taken out of the picture. Like for instance, in pop punk right now, you have this thing happening where it's almost like this modernization of pop punk mixed with like hip hop elements Stuff that you wouldn't normally think goes together. And the people I know who work in that scene come from all over the place. Like, they're not just in one place, but it is one sound, like one scene. Not that I'm psychic, but I kind of think that that's where things are going, 
is that you're still going to get scenes. You're still going to get trends. It's going to be created by people who are all over the world. That might also relate into trends being gone faster. That too. I, I think that's also a play, uh, a spot. If you, you mentioned uh, the entire scene from Seattle or think about the Bay Area in the States, it's similar because all those bands influenced each other. But if you are not bound to those bands and see more or less always the same people or the, the same crowd. Let's call it an episode of a breeding within is not taking shape for a couple of years, but only a couple of weeks. And it's over again because everybody's already located globally and uh, is looking for the next hype or the next trend. Perhaps uh, real scenes are not, not happening anymore. No, but I think that like, for instance, someone gravitates towards black metal, right? I think that... If they gravitated towards black metal in the 90s, there's very few artists that they could be influenced by or be around just because there's no way to really go beyond that. But I think if someone in the middle of uh, Alabama or something just falls in love with black metal and wants to write black metal, well, they're going to be able to listen to all the black metal that ever came out from all over the world And not be a part of, you know, the restrictions of that scene or really the culture that bound it to one thing. And then they're also going to be able to take influences from whatever else the hell they feel like listening to. However, I still think that people are going to gravitate towards what they gravitate towards. I still think there's going to be people who gravitate towards black metal, some people who gravitate towards death metal, some people who gravitate towards prog. And then some people who just make things that never existed before. <laughs> that are always the latter ones. At the moment, I feel um, most of the bands try to sound like a band that already existed. And the real innovative bands with origin sound, they only work on the long term. There are so many, so, so many bands out there who have not meant anything to a, a bigger audience before they hit like 10 or 15 years of existence. Those who simply keep the, this uh, perseverance and uh, work on and march on with, let's call it an iron will, I think they will form the next couple of scenes. But until you reach the status, so to say, you always have to compete with bands that uh, or artists who uh, just copy other bands and worst are uh, cover bands because they get paid best. Okay, so on that topic of finding your own sound as an artist, you know, that's something that comes up a lot like both at URM we have mixers who are always asking well how do you find your own sound at riff hard there's always guitar players asking how do you find your own sound and my opinion is you don't have to try right i think that your own sound is as unique as your personality all you have to do is try to get good at music and some people's personalities are very common let's just say so i'm sure you've noticed this on tour that you can go to 30 different cities, but there's a lot of people who are a lot like someone you met at a previous city. Like I feel sometimes like I've met the same person like 60 different times, but they're different people just because they have very similar personality types. And I think that it's the same with creativity. There's going to be a lot of people who have a similar personality and then you're going to have people with super unique personalities, but you don't have to try to develop that. That's just who you are. The thing you have to develop are your skills. And if you just develop your skills and get good, your personality musically will shine through but i'm curious what you think well a personality is going to be shaped over over the years that too everybody is different so i 
try to understand each character I meet on the road or off the road. Same goes for my my friends over here and try to understand them best. And the same happens with musicians. Some musicians might be damned to stay at a certain level because sometimes they don't have the effort to get further. Sometimes they just don't have the abilities. Sometimes they miss time. I mean, there are a thousand different reasons why you, why you don't evolve. Sometimes it's not laziness, but uh, you're satisfied with what you are. And the same goes for a character. So everybody's different. Deal best with that. And with the band, it's the same. I might not like every kind of musical style, I'm very picky when it comes to my favorite bands. I respect and understand each and every artist, for example, who goes on tour, who wants to record an album or tries to walk down the path of becoming a professional musician, making a living out of it, to gain this knowledge or reflect a little bit after our own experiences over all the years. That just takes some time. When I was uh, like 15 or 16, I thought like, okay, everybody who's playing uh, power metal and wearing spandex is absolutely not worth. <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, but uh, these days uh, I can simply lean back and laugh about it and uh, still respect the musicians. Even if I don't like uh, whatever it is they're doing on stage, um, I still understand it and see it from a completely different view. And the same happens with all the characters you meet on tour. I actually agree. And this is something that I started to realize on tour was started to, to develop a respect for anyone who has the balls to even try. I respect that more than the actual level of success, uh, just because there's a lot of factors involved with the success that are outside of somebody's control. You know, how the audience responds is not in your control. But I have a lot of respect for anyone who devotes their life to doing something that is uh, that difficult of a decision to make and that requires that much sacrifice. Because regardless of what genre you're into, it's a hard road to take. You have to really, really decide that it's something you want to do. But I agree with you that there's a thousand different reasons for why someone's musical personality will develop a certain way. Like you're right. It's not always effort. Sometimes it's talent. Sometimes it's someone is satisfied with what they've got. Like sometimes their life takes a certain path and other times you get the perfect combination of someone who's super talented, who has the time to put into it and their music happens to come out at a time also where the audience is ready for it. And then also they happen to, you know, meet the right people in the industry at the right time when those people are ready to say yes to them and give them opportunities. Like it's all these things that just happen. I think part of it is your effort. And then part of it is just that there's this timing to everything. I absolutely agree. You cannot force anything, but you can do the best you're, you're able to, to be, let's not call it prepared, but to follow your path. And that's writing the music you like, be honest. Basically, there's a saying, say what you think and do what you say. And that helps a lot also in this industry or on stage because people smell it 100 degrees against uh, the wind that somebody is honest on stage or is just playing to be somebody else. That's exactly the same in any genre. And if you are just working, if you keep working, if you 
are steady in what you're doing. Well, you cannot influence success or a career, but you are still have something you can you can show up and walk up to with uh, the head on your shoulders. And if you are gonna make it, it's fine. If not, well, you did what you wanted to do. And that's uh, a quite honest way to work in, well, not only the music business, but in life. Yeah, being a, being a character, being a human being. I like the word you said. You said people can smell it. And that's actually, I've used that same same language. I've, I've said people can smell authenticity the way that drug dogs can smell drugs. Like, especially in heavy genres, I think, because authenticity matters a lot. This reminds me of, uh, I had Devin Townsend on the URM podcast and we had an interesting conversation about this. He had a project with Chad from Nickelback. They're both Canadian and I don't know, like they met and decided to try to have a musical project together, which is sounds insane, but they tried and I don't think it worked out. And the thing that Devin told me was that, you know, they were just too different. Like, they're way too different. It just didn't work. But the thing that he thought was very interesting about Chad Kroger was that, you know, a lot of people hate Nickelback. And I'll admit, I, you know, I don't really listen to Nickelback. But their mixes sound amazing. But, uh, you know, not really, not really my thing. But a lot of people think that... Um, Chad is like making that shit up or is trying to be commercial. And what Devin was saying was, no, he's not trying. That's his authentic art, which is why he's so successful that it connects with people for whatever reason, for people who are into that sort of thing. And that is the kind of music that is natural to him. So even in a situation like a band like Nickelback, I think that there is a, there is a required authenticity which is uh, kind of interesting to say. It matters more the heavier you go, but I think it's still true, even in the most commercial genres. Because have you ever heard someone trying to fake commercial music? Uh, actually, a lot is called German folk music. <laughs> <laughs> I haven't heard German folk music. It's just... Don't. Don't do it? Okay, I'll, I'll stay away. Okay, so I'm sure that you've heard when people from the extreme metal scene who get frustrated try to do like a commercial project and sometimes it works but lots of times it more more often than not it doesn't work because they're not good at that kind of music because they don't actually like it and I, I it's not honest it doesn't really pick up fans and it just kind of fails I think about stories like Nile where where I believe if I remember correctly that Carl Sanders or one of them tried to have like a more mainstream metal band and then They got sick of it and just started Nile because it's what they actually wanted to do and became successful. I never heard about that story before, but uh, I can't imagine Carl Sanders playing in a in a hair metal band or something. I can't imagine either. And I remember, and man, it's been so long since I read this. Like I read this in like a guitar magazine in like 2003 or something. So like I could be misremembering. It just stuck with me that, they were saying that like, they just said, fuck it. We're going to do what we want to do. This insane, brutal death metal with an Egyptian thing to it. And that's what worked. <laughs> it worked well. And I think they go on tour 
next year? I'm sure. I'm sure. So at what point in your musical development did you first start to develop what, I guess, like, did you start to develop what you would consider to be a style? Like, because I feel like at first nobody really has a style, right? Because they're not good enough. But like, at what point, after how many years did it start to sound like you, I guess? The you that people know. That's uh, a quite good question. But I have to be honest, I'm yes, in, in the very beginning, we uh, just mashed together everything uh, each individual member listened at the time. So when we founded the band in 2002, every one of us was just playing on his respective instrument for a couple of weeks or months. We've been all quite naive and newbies at the same time, but highly enthusiastic with everything we did. When we started, it was a mix of thrash metal, death metal, black metal, ah, everything, everything and nothing. But over the years and while we also became better musicians and instrumentalists uh, in particular, we somehow established certain arrangements, certain riffs, certain ways to, to write music that I would consider our very own style, our very own signature. A big turning point for the band was a particular song called Incarnated. One of the songs we wrote after I would call the, the first chapter because in the first chapter we just try to show off although we haven't had abilities to do so to <laughs> to, to play to, yeah to, to play as fast as possible to play as many notes as possible and yeah uh, wider louder more more is not enough more so to say more is more they <laughs> says yeah and uh, well it's a wise man with a good guitar uh, when we just uh, sat down and reflected everything we uh, we did so far with the first album and the demo, we thought about, okay, we have to cool down and think about how to arrange songs. Because in the beginning, it was like a collage, like a salad of riffs. With this particular song, Incarnated, we started to establish something what actually all those bands did we have been looking up to. Proper arrangements with a real melody like a musical anchor you can get along, a proper chorus and a structure that is more or less related to, to pop music. But this all together was probably the first step towards our very own style. I like how you called it a musical anchor. That's a great word to use. Let's talk about that a little bit more because, you know, back to the first thing I said to you about what I really, really like about your style is that it's actually melodic. And I guess you could say there's actually an anchor to everything I've ever heard from you guys. Like every song has a unique identity, has a unique melodic, just a anchor to it. I'll just use your word. When you are writing, does that come to you? Like in your head, does it come to you on guitar? Is it something that develops over time while you start writing riffs and over time this anchor presents itself or is it the first thing like where in your writing process does that that thing that thing that ties the song together happen well i have a certain way to start with ideas that differs from all the guitarists and all the the, the writers i worked in the, the last 20 years i would call it working with deconstruction so first of all i have it, it's similar to uh, an artist working on a big stage room so first of all i have a big big brick and then i dismantle 
the main ideas from it. So to explain that, I first always have this musical anchor. It's a tiny little melody. It's a, a tiny little hook line or something that sticks in your head. So it's usually it's the it's the chorus line. And with the chorus line, I have my my first big brick. Then I try to assemble something that could be used as a, a first then bridges, intro, outro, something. And then I have my, my first big piece. And then I really start to analyze it. I start to share and trade all those ideas and uh, work a little bit on the arrangement. And when I have a first raw skeleton, I always call it skeleton ideas, then I start to write everything out, which means I'm, I'm sitting down and write all in each riff into uh, Guitar Pro. And then I'm starting to analyze it and uh, already start to work on a couple of details. So from a very, very raw first idea, I'm taking the bits and bits that are the most important for the entire song out first and then try to to underline them in the main arrangement. And afterwards, I start to analyze it and probably change, I don't know, the key in a, uh, what it is written. And I start to add a couple of interesting, uh, for example, rhythmic patterns to it or something. But the main part is always this certain hook line this as we mentioned a uh, musical anchor that's something that has been established since probably 15 years and all of those songs i wrote in this direction have been or became the most prominent or let's call it a successful yeah i wouldn't call them hits but uh, the most popular songs of the band all of them for example guitarists uh, or everybody who wrote music with me they work rather analytic they start with a certain uh, a certain uh, chord progression they start uh, they start with a certain rhythmic pattern sometimes and um, they, they have a rather analytic part i always write first with the intention to have a certain hook line something i could imagine stuck in your head that could also work in a life situation that people can sing along or for example if you play in Italy or if you play in uh, South America somewhere uh, people tend to to sing along all those choruses or even vocal lines or even solos that's totally in insane and that's something I always wanted to establish but combined with the musical approach to write really demanding music so everything you hear is maybe at the first impression easy to digest but if you try to cover it well then good luck good, yeah <laughs> enjoy enjoy practicing okay so that initial idea is it something that you come up with on guitar do you come up with it on your head is it something you like sing into a recorder and then start working from there always on the guitar okay Everything I do, I'm writing on the guitar. In the last years, I tend to take off the guitar amp because I have a, a little daughter and she doesn't like to hear electric guitars at three o'clock in the morning. <laughs> <laughs> so if those riffs I'm writing work on a guitar, I can write them in Guitar Pro, but not vice versa. I'm not composing anything in uh, Guitar Pro and then try to make it happen with a guitar. It always had to have this instrument in your hand because then the song works. Man, I agree with you so much on that. Um, I want to keep talking about this writing, but since you brought that up, I just need to say, I feel like writing in Guitar Pro first and then transferring it to the instrument leads to a lot of problems that uh, as a producer I encountered, like problems such as songs that don't make any sense musically on the instrument that the band 
cannot play, not because it's difficult, but because it makes no sense and doesn't feel like <laughs> real, doesn't feel like music, doesn't fall under your fingers the way that something you play on guitar does because you didn't write it on guitar. So uh, I've always thought that the proper way to use Guitar Pro is you write it first, then you use Guitar Pro to document it and to analyze it. But so, okay, so back to the anchor idea. What I'm trying to understand is like, say you have a four note melody, right? Something simple, like let's say the anchor is four notes. When you come up with the anchor, is it in the form of a riff or is it in the form of a very basic, like, this is the motif. Like there's like a four note pattern. This is the motif. And then from there, once you have that, then it's like, how many ways can I make this cool? How many ways can I expand on it? Like, what can we do with this? Or is it in the form of some crazy ass riff that has like some cool melodic uh, idea in it? Uh, it's first always the melody. And uh, when you refer to a, a four note melody anchor, uh, I can form basically everything around it or from it. So if I write it down, I, I analyze it, what kind of key would work for it? Where can I uh, add some changes? What would work, for example, as a counterpoint to it? Then I'm quite fast to, uh, to form an entire song out of it. But the problem is always, well, gaining those ideas <laughs> in a, uh, at first form. And usually it's one certain main riff with the melody included. It's rarely that I only have the melody itself, but it's uh, this uh, hard to explain uh, in a foreign language. I have a certain melody with a riff. I try to get the essence out of it and what I can form out of it. And a few times I just had the notes itself single picked notes, let's call it like that. And uh, I work something around it. And really, really strong melody or riff, I think you can, with a little bit of experience, you can build an entire song out of it within a couple of days. But until you have this first initial idea, sometimes you wait a year, sometimes two. That's uh, something you cannot force or I cannot force, unfortunately. I feel like the best songwriters do that. I think that that's a very advanced but also very historically tried and true songwriting method i did a class on songwriting for creative live a few years ago a few years many years ago it's 2013 in this class this was before urm before urm i was doing classes for creative live and uh i brought on four people i brought on the dude from nails i brought on the singer from demon hunter I brought on somebody that does pop writing. I think he writes melodies. He's a top line writer in pop. And then I brought actually a co-host of this podcast who couldn't be here today, John Brown from Monuments. And my idea was to take people who are really, really good in four completely different genres and show what they have in common in their songwriting. And what I figured out um, was that and then we also looked at a bunch of like famous songs and great songs is that a lot of the best writers do that. A great song typically only needs one or two or three ideas. Three, and three is a lot. One or two great ideas, usually enough for an entire song if you know how to manipulate those ideas and uh, write proper variations. I mean, the first 
band that's coming to mind now is the band Muse. If you listen to the Absolution album, their best songs and also the most popular songs do that. They'll have one idea, but it doesn't it doesn't sound like one riff through the whole song. It's like choruses and verses and bridges and like really cool instrumental parts and intros and outros and everything. But it's if you analyze it, it's all based on one idea. It's great. It's enough sometimes to uh, write a platinum album with one or two ideas. <laughs> it's crazy. Yeah. Well, because you're writing songs, right? Not sy symphonies, which is a, it's like songs are a more of a short form kind of art form, I think. Like, and so I think songs are more about not one feeling, but like one, they're like one entity almost. And I think one of the biggest problems in extreme metal is that if you listen to a lot of extreme metal albums, you could take like the second riff from song number 10 and replace it with the fifth riff from song number three or the seventh riff from song number one and it would make no difference. That's a quite sad thing. But if you, if you keep uh, a certain diversity within your albums, it's... Uh, it doesn't matter if it's uh, a different vibe, pace, speed, tempo, attitude, tuning, whatever it is. But if you keep the diversity broad and uh, work with a, a, a bigger palette than uh, than other bands, I think you you win more than you could lose. Yeah, I completely agree. So let's talk about working with uh, Frederick Nordstrom. He's fucking great, first of all. <laughs> He's definitely a character and a very interesting personality. That's for sure. Absolutely. Have you worked with a producer that's got his type of approach before? No. I know a couple of musicians that remind me to Frederick, but uh, I never worked with a producer similar to him because he works a little bit probably on his own. So he uh, he developed most of what he's doing uh, on his own. And uh, he, he also mentioned a couple of times that he invented, uh, invented the wheel probably two or three times in his career. <laughs> uh, uh, although it was already invented. So um, I think he's, he's one of the guys who try to find solutions on his own instead of uh, just copying anyone else and this is something that makes him really unique and well his production simply underline that and that's in probably 30 35 years already i consider him to be one of the foundational producers and mixers of modern metal like you don't have you wouldn't have modern metal the way you have it today without his work in my opinion there's very few people who have been able to do that in my view he's definitely one of the important hats in the in the history so far and especially with uh, his work for slot of the soul and uh, at the gates i think he well he influenced many 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 producers and artists alike but what people oversee many times is that most of his productions are simply timeless And they aged so well. If I listen to the gallery of uh, Dark Tranquility, for example, or uh, old In Flames albums like Colony, I mean, that's still something, uh, if you would put it out these days, it would be still uh, considered as a fantastic uh, production. Absolutely. I was listening to a couple of his demo records the other day. Still sound fucking great. So when you're tracking guitars with him, could you talk about his tracking approach at all? 
Well, in Gothenburg, we only tracked acoustic guitars. The pandemic more or less forced us to uh, to change the entire approach of recording albums. All previous records we did, even the demo, we rented or, well, booked a studio for a certain amount of time, depending on the budget. And each musician traveled there, recorded his parts with an engineer. Then it got mixed and mastered. But with the current situation going on, we had to decide in between either recording no album or find, well, other solutions. So we recorded in national studios. So the bass got recorded in the Netherlands, the drums in Austria, and uh, the guitars were recorded in Germany. And for the acoustic guitars, mix master and vocal recordings, I flew over to Gothenburg to record that with Frederick. So I've been in his studio for approximately 10 days, I think. We prepared to mix, but he did a mix on his own and sent emails and first demos then digital. Got it. Okay, so that uh, that being the case, let's talk about tracking the guitars anyways. When it comes to tracking, uh, do you prefer to track yourself or have someone produce you? I don't like to track myself because I'm getting too picky and I'm, f- I'm falling into my own trap of being too perfectionist. I'm scrolling into uh, the eye tracks and uh, from objective point of view, they are already already not good. They're, they're actually perfect <laughs> and, you c- and you can't hear a difference, but I see a difference. And then I start to re-record it over and over and over again. And um I tend to overwork. So I'd rather have somebody next to me and I focus entirely only on the performance and uh, leave the editing and uh, decision to say, okay, this is perfect, this is good, uh, or let's do it again to somebody else because uh, I'm not objective enough, especially not with my own music. I feel the exact same way. When it came to my own band, the only time that I had a good experience in the studio was when we had a real producer, like a really great metal producer producing me and I could just be a guitar player. And that's also the best I've ever played in the studio because that was my one focus was just play the shit out of this and trust the producer. Um, Whereas all the other times I would track myself and I feel like I played worse also because I feel like you can only focus on You only have 100% of your focus, right? So if 100% of your focus is on guitar, that's, you're going to do better than if it's like 50% on editing and recording and 50% on guitar and you're constantly pressing space bar. And I feel like, I feel like it's a lot harder to just focus. That's part of it for me too. Absolutely. I absolutely agree. And I know it sounds quite German, but you're more efficient too. Oh, absolutely. Man, efficiency, I feel like is, uh, it, it does sound German, but it also sounds smart. I think it's one of the most important things in the studio, especially when you're making a technical metal album. There's a lot of notes. There's a lot of stuff that you need to do to get it done. And if you're not efficient about it, maybe it takes two weeks to record the rhythms or something that can stretch out into months and months and months. It can happen. So, okay, so when you're tracking yourself, how do you know when something's good enough? When I track myself, I always record four lines over later. So uh, if I record rhythm guitars, I always have four layers. And if they all sound almost like the same note, then it's perfect. However long it takes to get there. A lot of time. (laughs) (laughs) 
if, if there's somebody next to you, it's, it's quite easy because you are not distracted by the fact because you, you just deliver. You deliver the best you can and then uh, you have somebody else uh, telling you it's done or not. And with Frederick tracking acoustic guitars, it was quite similar because we do not have a proper big room here. And with his vintage equipment, we, he definitely had some pro material. The entire environment was simply uh, perfect for that. So we recorded acoustic guitars with... <laughs> that, that's quite a funny story, with uh, acoustic guitar from the guitarist of uh, Julio Iglesias. Oh, what? All right, let's talk about that. <laughs> he just lives next door and... Uh, They share equipment every now and then, and uh, <laughs> I had to laugh my ass off. So what you hear on A Valediction is the acoustic guitar of the guitars of Julio Iglesias. That's awesome. And uh, how he approached to record that is entirely different of what I do at home or what we do or did in the past, because we always try to make everything super perfect. Like everything has to be on the grid and uh, there's no excuse for like half a millisecond off or something. So when Frederick and me, uh, we talked about uh, how we record acoustic guitar, what kind of microphones and all that uh, we used, I just asked him how he wanted to do it. Because in the past we recorded those guitars chord by chord, simply to prevent all those tiny little noises and plings and plongs and uh, what an acoustic guitar makes. And he said, what are you going to do? No, you record in one piece and all those things and dongs, all those scratches and whatever you hear that are the characteristic of acoustic guitar. And this is exactly how this instrument sounds. And that's what we did. And to be honest, I, I had to think about it a little bit because first I didn't agree because then it doesn't sound perfect. But in the end, this is exactly what um, I think his productions or for, for Arab, the change in this production was simply about this this human touch, this, I wouldn't call it imperfection because it's uh, you, you're not hearing any, any mistake or something on the record, but it sounds more organic and more like a real player playing real music. I can imagine that if that's not the way you're used to working, that you had to mentally... You had to mentally adjust to the approach. What made you finally basically say, okay, this is actually kind of cool? Was it hearing it, hearing it back? Um, when I listened to the entire song we recorded at that day, and I, then I understood it because I, I went to Frederick Nordstrom and Studio Fredman to change our sound a little bit towards a more open and a more attitude with a grip. Yeah, actually, it's about attitude, how, how this album should sound and how the band should evolve in, into which direction. And there are many producers out there. There are many very good producers, but you have to see who is fitting to your band and your vision. And listening to all of his records, I thought, okay, this could fit. And uh, we went there without without having any anyone of our close friends uh, recording there before. We don't had, we didn't know anything. So it was, it was quite uh, a surprise and well, something unexpected. I went to Gothenburg and I didn't know how the studio looks from inside. <laughs> it was quite, quite interesting. And in the end, he proved why he is such a respected producer in every every way and especially what i learned as a audio and studio and acoustic nerd is what he gave us or gave us with his sheer experience and laid-back attitude while simply coming back to the basics i think that that hits the nail pretty uh, pretty well back to the basics like you're human you're making human music and in the style we are playing like this technical 
progressive, super demanding uh, music, barely anything is real. Some productions sound like more like a computer game because there's not even a real drummer you hear. And uh, this is something I really wanted to get away. And with him, I think we, uh, we hit exactly that point where we needed to have a change to not repeat ourselves. I think that's a wise decision. I think that one of the biggest mistakes that bands make when picking producers or mixers is they'll ask a mixer to give them something that a different mixer can do instead of just going to the mixer that they wanted. Um, and that, that has happened to me and that happened at the studio I worked at that somebody would say they wanted the Joey Sturgis sound or something. It's like, so why don't you just go to Joey? Uh, you're, some people will say, you know, they'll go to Kurt Ballou and want something that's hyper-polished. And it's like, well, why don't you go to someone that does hyper-polished stuff? You go to a certain producer for a certain reason. And I think that that's the wise way, the wise way to do it. Mixing wise, how has it been handled in the past? Like, have you been super involved in the past? Yes. So the studio we worked with in the past, Widget Studios in uh, southern Germany, uh, is quite close to my place, probably around 10 miles. So every now and then I went by bike to the studio. So it's really nearby and I was involved in everything. So when drums have been recorded, I've been there. When, uh, well, the bass has been recorded, I've been there. And that happens basically all the time. And during the mixes, I've been not entirely involved, but for example, during the editing sessions for uh, drums and so on, I've been present, but not involved. So I've been there uh, for questions like, hey, uh, do you want to have this piece edited to the max or can we leave uh, the rock and roll factor a little bit more something like that sounds like then in that case kind of like trusting somebody new and being a little bit more hands-off is a kind of a challenge yeah that's uh, not the easy easiest part because i like to have things done my way i'm very open about that but yeah it's a, it's a matter of trust i mean uh, also in the past we work with producers or with a producer who knows the band and if somebody else has more knowledge in a certain field then you don't have to tell him how to do his job you can uh, you can tell him like what you would like to hear in which direction you're going to but don't tell him how his job is going to do it's funny so one of the things that i see a lot of mixers producers early on in their career saying is that they can't get bands to listen to them. So what do they do? Like, how do they approach that? And my thoughts are, well, problem is they're not listening to you because they don't trust you. And the only way to gain the trust of a band is to prove to them that, that you should be trusted. And you do that through your prior work. And then also when they're there in the studio, by delivering a result that they couldn't have imagined on their own. Kind of like you just said with the acoustic guitar that you didn't try, you weren't so sure about it, but then once you heard it all back in the context of a song, it all made sense. And, uh, and then you trusted him basically. And I think that a lot of producers that are trying to build careers haven't figured out it, haven't figured out how to establish that trust. It's a hard thing to do, but like it's a, also a very simple thing to do. It's simple in that deliver the results and then you'll be trusted. 
basically. D- depending what you get delivered as a as a mixing engineer. I mean, shit in, shit out. <laughs> well, yes. There, well, okay. There's that too, where some people have completely unrealistic expectations. But let's just say in a situation where the real where the expectations are realistic, I, I definitely think that the trust is something that. That needs to be established. And I mean, can you think of a way other than results to establish trust with you? In this position, you need to be half a psychologist and half an engineer. So if you understand the band dynamics and uh, you have a sixth sense for tensions or, well, missing trust or something, then uh, then you're half through the production. It's, it's quite hard. And I understand if... Uh, Some mixers just, or uh, producers, engineers just stop after a couple of years because they get frustrated with the situation and hearing the same stories over and over again. But at the same time, it might be really rewarding if you have a band in the studio recording, getting a mix, getting a master and they're entirely overwhelmed by what you did. And I think this is what drives you as a, as a producer to, to go further. As Fredrik Nordstrom, for example, mentioned, if I want to make a career or money, I choose the wrong job, but this is what I like. And th- therefore, I just choose bands I want to work with. And that might be also a part that helps. If the engineer doesn't take on jobs he he's not capable of, that happens with a lot of beginners. If you try to mix, I don't know, uh, an orchestra of uh, 100 players, as your first job, maybe it's a little bit too much. <laughs> yeah, uh, yeah, maybe. Let's talk about the technical aspect of what you do, because uh, we've talked about the recording, we've talked about, you know, the songwriting component, but what about the actual playing of it can't be ignored. Like, we need to talk about that, because it is very, very difficult to pull off the genre that you guys pull off. And so I know that in the studio, it takes forever to get four tracks uh, perfect, but um, you've got to play it live and you only have one shot. Uh, What I'm wondering is at this point, now that you've been doing it for decades, do you have to practice the way you used to have to practice to get the precision or is it something that happens more naturally or do you still have a routine? I do have a routine. And uh, it contains around two hours of playing a day. That's uh, like half an hour warming up and different exercises. And uh, an hour I practice songs of our life set, which always changes. In half an hour, I just try to not think about anything and uh, try to, uh, well, find some new melodies for some new riffs. So that's more or less my daily routine. At the moment, uh, I'm entirely wrapped in uh, public relations for the new album, so I can't keep it up. And tomorrow I play with another band. But in general, this is my this is my routine. And we, when we are going to tour with the band, it's picking up to probably three hours, maybe three and a half hours. But I try not to, to overplay because I also had some some issues with my hands around 10 years ago when I was simply playing too much. And I got some, I think the medical uh, condition is called tendinitis. Oh yeah, yeah. That, I've had that before. It sucks. Yeah, it's simply overplaying. Too much overplaying, not warming up. I mean, what we are doing not only on guitars, also on uh, bass and especially drums, is basically uh, professional sports. And especially with um, this high intention, 
and, and intense uh, performance, you really need to take care. When I was probably 18, 19, I just played for hours and hours and hours. But nowadays I really have to make sure I, I'm, I don't play the, the worst or most demanding song uh, during the first five minutes because I know I'm, I'm getting an issue with my hands. So it's a, it's a mixture in between experience and routine to get there. But to answer your question, yes, I have to rehearse a lot with the guys and that counts for everybody else in the band as well. I expected that to be the answer. Can we talk a bit about the warm-up routine and what you do for that? Is it the same thing every time? In parts. I have uh, an old Taktel from Wittner. I'm not sure if you see that. Oh, yeah. Wow. Old school. This is super old school. Holy shit. I got a copy. My first one, unfortunately, broke a couple of years ago. Angry girlfriend. <laughs> <laughs> and this, this is what I started with when I played uh, piano at the age of nine. My teacher at the time told us you have to play with a metronome. Because we as uh, kids in school, we just played too fast. Of course, like everybody, everybody was faster than everybody else. It's quite funny. We've been nine years old and we are doing the same at the age of 30. <laughs> like speed is everything. So uh, you see how far we evolved as human beings. But um, this uh, tactile, like a metronome, that always helped me a lot. And uh, I always work on a couple of exercises um, in between, like usually eight note riffing or sometimes some uh, legato parts in, in the very beginning. And then I uh, build up my exercise to uh, string skipping. That's pretty much essential. Eight note riffing with uh, string skipping parts. That's pretty much what, uh, what makes this a signature sound of Obscura. Best example, anti-cosmic overload. It's always a shift in between up and down strikes. So something like this is always part of uh, the warm-up routine. But I'm trying to start quite slow uh, with eight notes at around 80 BPM. And then I build my way up. And depending depending on my daily condition, I would call it, God, I'm old, <laughs> 230, maximum 240 is my limit on speed because I figured everything above doesn't sound good anymore. I'd rather try to play a little bit slower. That's not even slow, though. Yeah, I mean, for, for this kind of genre. It's all relative. Uh, wasn't it Archspire who just released a 400 BPM oh, yeah. song or something? Yeah, I mean, <laughs> dude, Ar Archspire's fucking insane. And they sound great. That's rare. <laughs> that doesn't happen very often. It's a fantastic band and super funny, funny guys. God, they're so fucking fast. It's ridiculous. <laughs> when you're drilling parts of the songs, when you're drilling for that hour, is it, isolating parts that give you trouble is it playing entire songs start to finish like what are you focusing on usually i'm starting to play the entire songs especially when i already learned those songs of course when uh, we change our our life set i start from uh, scratch piece by piece but uh, in my daily routine when i uh, play for one hour previous songs or old songs i just play the entire set from front to end and then i pick a couple of songs where probably something was not in my uh, in my head anymore, like a couple of mistakes. So I, I pick this particular part. And in some songs, there are some parts I always have to repeat every now and then because they are extremely difficult. So usually those those songs uh, are not lasting very long in our life set. <laughs> <laughs> Makes sense. And so, and that, that last 30 minutes, you're just coming up with ideas. But so... Does that count as your 
like say you're writing an album, is that, does that count as like, that's your writing time or is that just your practice time? And then on top of that, That's definitely on top, just for the sake of it, of playing something sometime. Yeah, but actually most of the time it's nothing in anything. But here and then I picked a couple of cool melodies and uh, I try to, to keep them in my mind or just record uh, a couple of bits of that. But that's just for keeping the fun of playing guitar, to be honest. Sometimes I just play a couple of covers because if you just uh, force yourself into this um, quite stiff routine, it gets boring and I'm not making music to have the same feeling as a nine to five job. Yeah, I think that that's really smart. I think that avoiding burnout is very, very important. The longer you do it and, you know, the more demanding that the genre you play in, yeah, there's going to be things that you have to do like an athlete to just be able to keep doing it. But the moment that it stops being enjoyable, uh, you've got problems in my opinion. Absolutely. Absolutely. I've been there years ago and I don't want to be there again. So at, yeah, at a certain time you simply lose the joy of uh, working with your instrument or making music at all. And, uh, I think that's a matter of experience when you somehow feel that you should rather stop for maybe one or two days and then rather pick up the guitar with really excitement again instead of pushing yourself to do something you're actually not in the mood for. It's it's really a thin line in between working really disciplined and hard on your chops and keeping some freedom to your, your well-being at the same time. Yeah, it's interesting because on the one hand, I'm sure you've got this, I've got this, is uh, you have to know when you're just kind of being lazy, I think. Like when it's just like, I just don't feel like playing, but I should. I don't feel like doing this, but I should. Or when it's actual burnout and you really should take a break. And it's hard to know the difference, at least for me, because uh, there's that voice that makes me feel guilty when I'm when I know there's work to do. But there are times for sure when just not doing work is the smartest thing. It's the smartest thing and will allow you to do better work by taking that break. Absolutely. Uh If you uh, if you relate to the comparison to an athlete, they also have the days off where they don't do anything because you need it simply, uh, well, to have some rest for the muscle or build up muscles. And it's not too far from uh, being a musician. No, I, I don't think it's too far at all from being a musician. So what about when you're just not coming up with good ideas writing-wise? Do you just keep trying Do you like what's how do you get around writer's block? Well, that's a good question, and uh, I cannot force it. I tried; it doesn't work. When I when I try to force having ideas for whatever song it is or whatever production it is, it doesn't work. So I I found a, another solution to to get my way around it, which uh, turned out to work quite well. And I also play in a different uh, in another band which uh, plays a different style. I figured that I distract myself switching in between different mindsets. For example, writing one or two songs for this project and then uh, starting something else with a different approach doesn't work. What I figured is, again, very efficient. I'm working one project from front to very end. For example, the Obscura album, we prepared, we, we collected our skeletons uh, that I mentioned, a couple of ideas. And when we decided, okay, 
Now we start songwriting from February to blah, whatever, May or something. Then I'm working only in a certain mindset. And then I don't need to force certain ideas because if, if I write the first one or two songs, then everything else is just coming along quite well because you're already in a certain mindset. You have your framework, your, your, your environment set up for exactly that. And if you keep on doing that, you just work on the long term very, very well with that. And if I would switch in between to something else, it doesn't matter what it is, like uh, producing a media, uh, music video or working on, on artworks or something, it would distract me entirely. So when you start, you should finish it in one row. I completely agree. And so I've never been able to uh, start an idea and then, you know, put it down and come back to it later. Uh, that doesn't work for me. I've always had to... I've always had to start it and finish it. And I know that not every writer works that way, but I feel like, at least for me, the feeling that you're trying to evoke is only, it's only there once in your life ever. And it's at there at the beginning. And so I feel like I need to get that out of the way. Like I, I need to get it while that feeling is there. We have a few questions from our listeners. Cool if I ask you some of them? Sure. Okay, awesome. So, okay, from uh, Christopher Jordan Boyd is wondering, hey, Stefan, do you keep riffs even if they don't make it onto the record or do you write all new material for each offering? I guess the reason I picked that question is because of what we were just talking about, about trying to finish things in one go. I collect all of those ideas in one go, as mentioned, but not all of the songs make it on the album. For example, on the new record, uh, the opening track, Forsaken, was meant to be the opening track on the previous record, but somehow it didn't feel finished. And uh, we have a couple of those songs who are somehow they're there, but they are not finished and they are not having the right feeling or the fitting in, in terms of pace and uh, an attitude to, to the other collection of songs. And therefore we don't finish them, but only certain riffs I barely collect because usually if I have a certain riff, I already have a thousand ideas how, how to form a song out of it. Yeah, and I guess if you didn't finish the song, there's a reason. Yeah, maybe the idea was simply not good enough. That's, that's a lot how I think about things too. Okay, Juan Medrano, what are the challenges of the rise when trying to book shows outside of Europe? For North America, it's definitely getting a U.S. working visa, which is a huge issue for everybody who's not living in the United States. Um, just to give you an example, for the last visas to play our 2018 tour, I paid 10,000 US dollars, which is just ticket, so to say. That's really a problematic. Aside that, everything else is just a matter of having the right contacts, finding cool bands to tour with you and be prepared. For example, we played, I think, for every album in, in Japan. We played for the, the last record in uh, New Zealand and Australia. But still, there are many, many places we haven't uh, been touring yet, but are still on my bucket list. So I love to go abroad. I love traveling because if you're part of a touring band, and Obscura I consider as a, as a live band, as a touring band playing globally, uh, you definitely need to like, enjoy and enjoy what uh, what traveling brings with you. And sometimes, well, you sleep for one hour or two hours in between two shows or something. That's part of the game. And if you like it, you're in the best place possible because what you get back when you're on stage is something money cannot pay you. Absolutely. 
one question actually from uh, Sean O'Shaughnessy that I thought was interesting. Uh, have there been any recent bands or songs or players that have raised the bar for you? Like you heard it and you immediately wanted to write new music or like up your own level? I think when I listened uh, to White Jeans of uh, the Night Flight Orchestra, I really thought uh, I have to do something like that because it's fucking awesome. You know the band? No, I don't actually. It sounds like I should. Uh, Night Flight Orchestra featuring Soilwork and Arch Enemy members. Oh, okay. I've heard I have heard of them, but I haven't heard them. It's fantastic. Bjorn is in it, right? Exactly. Yeah. Okay. I know what you're talking about. I just haven't heard it. He's good though. So yeah, I'll definitely check it out. Man, I can't even pronounce this name, so I'm not even gonna try. Uh which angle amplifier is your favorite and why? <laughs> That's a very nice question because I choose for each production a different amp, but I'm very, very connected to the company. They are based probably one and a half hours from my hometown. And I visit the factory every now and then. And we also started to build a couple of prototypes, a couple of ideas for uh, new guitar cabinets uh, with an A-type, V-type uh, Celestian speaker system. We shared a couple of uh, amplifiers and a couple of new ideas. And when I visited the company the last time, <laughs> it was quite funny because they have one big showroom with all amplifiers past and present but without the case so you only see the tubes and everything that is inside interesting you can play with a guitar with one uh, and you keep the cable and uh, they build a tiny little uh, switch system so you can uh, put a knob and it switches to a different amp but you keep the same uh, cap to it and that's super interesting but with probably 50 amps running at the same time you sweat your ass off <laughs> but uh, to get your answer a little bit better. For the new album, I used a Savage 120 angle amp and it sounds a little bit more round and less sharp than the previous one. For Diluvium, we used uh, Angle Fireball, which is pretty much dry, sharp and, uh, well, punches you straight in the face. For other productions, for uh, the band, I used uh, a Powerball. At the live situation, I built an entire new 19-inch rack so both amplifiers of both guitars are built in one big rack and we use a, a 50 watt tube amplifier. I upgraded the system to special edition preamps, four channel preamps, while everything is still programmed through a TC Electronic G Major 2 system. So it's quite interesting uh, how everything built, uh, was built together and we use basically both in a live situation, like uh, the real preamp tube sound, but mixed also with uh, a microphone signal and uh, a cap simulator, like the angle cap loader in between. So we have per guitar four lines and they get mixed for the live situation. That's really, really intense. But we basically put together the two different worlds out of uh, digital amps with the this cap loader, which is an, an uh, IR loader for cap simulators, because you have uh, every day the same sound, but blended with the microphone that is in front of the cap. And th th this is really, really exciting because you have the real feeling. You have everybody that is staying in the first three, four rows uh, cut the head shorter 
because the amps are still rolling and growling like hell, but combined with the quite convenience of having the, the same stage sound every night. So I think we hit the nail pretty much there. That sounds really, really awesome. I really feel like the combination of both worlds is the way forward with getting both consistency, but also reality in sounds. It's the same with drums. It's the blending that makes things sound both consistent and real. Yeah, if you just replace everything, doesn't matter if it's amps, if it's uh, just a DI channel you use from a bass amplifier and put a couple of compressors or uh, yeah other effect units after it, or you just trigger your entire drum set. It's always a matter of taste. But for some sounds, it works perfectly. When I, for example, uh, see a gent band like Periphery in a live situation, I don't want to have an organic sound. I really want to listen to listen to this modern cold attitude and that's something you only get with this certain equipment so band taste convenience budget all this uh, lets into uh, choosing your equipment for for live shows i agree and also you know i i really really do agree with you on that different artistic directions require different tools and uh, i i think that there's certain bands that you want to hear sound a certain way and the tools make sense for for that sound Yeah, there's no right or wrong. And um, I remember there was a discussion about uh, using only tube amplifiers or only digital amplifiers or something in between. I think 20 years ago, it was uh, the difference in between transistor amps and uh, real tubes and all that. I mean, there's no right or wrong. Just choose what fits best to your style. Or sometimes a wrong decision leads into some new original sounds. Who knows? I think the only people that know are the people that try things. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh, Basically. There, there's a nice saying called learning through complaining. <laughs> I like that saying. Well, Stefan, I think this is a good place to end the podcast. I want to thank you for taking the time to uh, talk to me and uh, do this. It's been a pleasure talking to you and uh, I've wanted the opportunity for a while. So thank you. Thank you very much for the invitation. And well, I hope everybody listening to the podcast enjoyed the Riff Hard episode of today. I'm sure they will.